Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. I'm your host, uh, Stephen Pinecker, and I want to welcome a very special guest who uh, agreed to come on at the last minute, just like one of my previous guests has as well. And uh, part of the reason I'm having this conversation, uh, you know, like I mentioned in my interview with Justin Griffin, um, the, the writer and director of Who Killed Joseph Smith, I really didn't intend to wade into this uh, area. But some of my viewers, both Christian and uh, uh, LDS, sent me the links to the movie. So I watched it and contemplated it and thought about it and decided, you know, um, maybe I should talk to Justin. Well, um, my, my guest here, uh, Kimberly, reached out to me and asked to give a response. And uh, Kimberly, uh, welcome to the program, first of all. Thank you. Thanks so for having Kimberly me. Uh, Kimberly Smith, I'm just going to read a little bit of her biography for you. Uh, is a, Kimberly Smith is a writer, speaker, and researcher of church history. She is the research director for the Joseph Smith Foundation and author of several articles on the web, including the article Answering the Claim, Did Joseph Smith Fight Plural Marriage? Her research has contributed to the publication of three books, Seer Stone versus Yerman Thummim, Book of Mormon Translation on Trial, Faith Crisis Volume 1, We Were Not, we, we were not Betrayed, and Faith Crisis Volume Two, The Progressive Rewriting of Church History. Uh, boy, those are some tantalizing topics and uh, titles. Of course, I've had Richard Bushman on. I have a feeling you probably are <laughs> maybe talking about him in some of those books. Um, so Kimberly, um, I think the time, you know, it's we need to hear your side, your faithful uh, LDS. And uh, you, you were very upset by this film. Uh, understandably, if I was faithful, I would, I would feel the same way. And I think Justin would understand that. And you, you told me that you've been kind of um, keeping an eye on Justin for the last year. Uh, so just tell me a little bit uh, about that. But before, I, I, I want to give context. So I don't want to jump the gun here. I want you to tell me a little bit about your faith journey, uh, your background, and uh, we'll just, and then also how you got involved with the Joseph uh, Smith uh, Foundation. Yeah, great, thanks. That's a good place to start, I think. Um, so yeah, I'm active member of the church. Um, what I think is unique about my background is, and especially in the context of this discussion, is that um, I didn't really grow up in an active family where um, the typical LDS family, mother and father married in the temple, was taken to church. My faith journey is that at a very young age, I always desired to learn about God. And so um, my mother was um, born and raised in the church, but was never active. And my father was um, had no religion, essentially. And so I, I pursued religion on my own. And I um, was baptized when I was eight, and I did attend church mostly by myself, sometimes with a few of my, my siblings, but mostly by myself, attending church and just seeking to have a relationship with, with God and seeking to understand um, just the, the faith of my mother and, and the LDS faith from which I was surrounded by, and I gained a, a really strong testimony even before the age of eight. Um, I first gained a testimony of prayer. It was something that at the age of six, I had a spiritual experience where um, I became lost in a store and it was very over overwhelming. And I knelt down and prayed in the middle of the store. 
the age of six and was able to um, find my parents. And, um, and ever since then, I, I, um, I just wanted to hold, hold fast to um, keeping a good relationship with God. And um, so I really just have a strong testimony of, of not just the church, but most importantly of the restoration of the gospel and of the prophet Joseph Smith. And, and again, it's, it's important to understand that context that this isn't something that was, you know, thrust upon me. This is something I sought out and I gained my own personal testimony and witness. And so that's, that's pretty much my faith journey. Hmm. Uh, did you serve a mission? I did serve a mission. I served a mission in South America in Paraguay. And how was that experience for you? 2000, 2000, okay. Mm -hmm. It was a really good experience. And, you know, looking back, um, I, I would say that the mission was more for me than for anybody I, I taught, but um, it was a really good experience. Mm. So um, you obviously um, married, have children. Uh-huh. I'm married. I was uh, married in Salt Lake Temple in 2004, and we have four sons. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah, and some are probably teenagers now, right? A 15-year-old, a 13-year-old, and then a five-year-old and a two-year-old. I'll keep you in my prayers. <laughs> <laughs> <Need it>. um, <laughs> so, uh, so basically, you're 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 um, taking care of your uh, children, you're raising them, and then about six years ago or so, you started getting involved in an organization called the Joseph Smith Foundation. Maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah, um, that's 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 correct. It's it's interesting. I. Looking back, I'm like, when did I first meet the Joseph Smith Foundation? And I, I think I it came through their documentaries. Um, the first one I watched was the Book of Mormon Parallels. And that just really opened up the, the Book of Mormon for me to see that it's it's a prophetic history for our day and it parallels our, our time. And so that was really fascinating to me. And so um, wherever they would pre present, I just kind of show up to to watch and to learn more about what they were doing. And um, I just started asking if I could get involved and um, slowly they they just started incorporating me into some of their projects, just starting out as doing a little bit of research or um, um, I first started, yeah, just mainly doing research, hmm. whatever topic they needed and um, found that it was actually a talent, I guess you could say, a hidden talent I didn't know about, um, just being able to research and, and that just became kind of a passion for me. And then I fell in love with church history. I probably study or read um, church history anywhere between five to six hours a day. Wow. So just as doing your research, of course, you're coming across a lot of information. What are some of the more interesting and surprising things you've come across in your years of research? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> Lots of things. Um, I think mostly right now, the most fascinating thing that I've been learning about is, is actually centered around Nauvoo. I think that there's a lot of things that people don't know about the importance of Nauvoo and and mostly the doctrine, doctrinal developments of, of some of these, of the revelations of Joseph Smith in Nauvoo. A lot of people 
don't know exactly what he was restoring and why. And I think that it's at the heart of this controversy as well. Hmm. Got it. Interesting. So basically, um, about a year or so ago, I guess you, uh, Justin Griffin, popped up on your radar screen, and you were kind of just kind of um, observing what was going on and doing a little background and researching because you had heard about this film. I guess I don't know. You can give, just fill me in with the history there. Maybe just talk a little bit about what got you on this journey that has you ended up reaching out to me to, to have this conversation today. Okay, great. That's very important as well. Um, it's an interesting story. So we just, well, I say we, not me. Hannah just, Hannah Stoddard, she just finished writing um, a book, the volume one of the Plural Wives of Joseph Smith. So for about a little over a year, I've been helping to do research on the Plural Wives of the Prophet Joseph Smith. And um, reading, actually reading the Plural Wives of the Prophet Joseph Smith, that's actually how I gained my testimony of plural marriage. I, um, it's not something I ever questioned or doubted or something that bothered me in, in history as some people do, it troubles them. But um, as I actually, as I read the stories of the women, I gained a really strong testimony of the sacredness and the divinity of that doctrine. And so we were doing, I was doing research for her um, volume one of the, the Pluralizer of the Prophet Joseph Smith. And it interesting parallel that at the same time, it, it seemed like social media was flooded with these comments and ideas that Joseph Smith never taught plural marriage. In fact, they're claiming Joseph Smith fought polygamy. And I just thought that, you know, at first you think that's just a, where did that come from? Because there's no historian in or out of the church that denies that Joseph Smith taught and practiced plural marriage. And so I was just kind of watching the conversation um, a little bit and it kind of took off. It kind of just started spreading like wildflower, wildfire across the internet that Joseph had never taught plural marriage. And so I just was watching a few of these groups, these um, just Latter-day Saint gospel discussion groups. And it just seemed like there was the same group of people that were promoting this idea. And so I just kind of started watching. Um, they were inviting people to their group. And so I, I joined the group and I was just watching, just kind of watching the conversation. I realized very quickly that not only did they deny that Joseph Smith taught plural marriage, but then they're also um, speaking against the ordained leadership of Brigham Young. And so I thought, hey, this is something I need to pay attention to because these are members of the church, right? These are, they're portraying themselves as faithful, active members of the church. And um, those are some of our key doctrines of the restoration and they're denying them essentially. So I just started watching and it came, became very apparent that there was um, kind of a group of, and I will say disgruntled members. And I know that they don't like it when I call them disgruntled member, members, but that's how I describe them because they were very antagonistic kind of towards the church. And, um, and so it felt like they were disgruntled members and speaking openly against mainly Brigham Young and everything after Brigham Young in the church. 
you know, I, uh, I talk to people all uh, throughout Utah. I talk to people in Missouri. I have connections to most of the groups within the restoration. Um, I actually was talking to an LDS person. I said, they said, they told me about a prominent individual um, who is LDS, who doesn't believe Joseph practiced polygamy. And I said, how common is this? I didn't think this was something that was, I thought this was a foreign concept to the Utah saints. And he said, no. I said, what percentage of, would you say, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints believe that Joseph Smith did not practice polygamy? And he told me somewhere between a quarter to a third in his reckoning. Uh, that's a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Yep, it's a growing movement. And so just to be fair, of course, I'm in touch with everybody. So uh, I've talked mm -hmm. to my people. And so just so this just to give a little context here, you know, I have friends who were born and raised in the RLDS church. And they will tell you that this these ideas uh, of, Joseph, uh, of Brigham was the one that introduced uh, polygamy, that Joseph fought, fought it. Um, this was the kind of the founding narrative of the church. Uh, you know, Emma uh, denied that uh, Joseph practiced polygamy. Um, Joseph Smith III, his church uh, for decades uh, advocated that the position was that Joseph did not practice it. And it was something that was introduced by Brigham Young. Um, so that's the historical, um, you know, history of that church. Now, since then, the RLDS church now called the Community of Christ um, essentially has said that they accept that Joseph practiced polygamy. Um, so that's kind of where they're coming from. So I just want to give context that this is, um, is something within uh, Utah, uh, uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, RLDS. Um, there's, there are groups that broke off from the community of Christ because they felt it was going too liberal. And so those groups would be independent restorationists. Uh, some are organized with the prophet, others are not but they all maintain the narrative that Joseph did not practice polygamy. So what we're seeing is a cross-pollinization going on of um, some Utah-based saints and Missouri-based saints, if you will, kind of coming together with this idea that Joseph didn't practice polygamy. Would that be a fair assessment of what I just, what I said here? Yes, that's very fair. And, I, and I'm glad you, you brought that up because it, it's interesting that, so the RLDS church kind of formed over the opposition to two things. Number one, poor marriage, and then opposition to the ordained leadership of Brigham Young. And so in, in the mid-1980s, when Richard Howard, he's the first professionally trained historian for the RLDS Church, when he, he drops the bombshell, right, at this historical conference, and he's undeniable proof that Joseph Smith did, did practice poor marriage in the course. I mean, this is coming at the same time, like you said, there was a lot of, they were becoming more liberal and progressive within the church, within their beliefs. And so um, it was just kind of like a culmination of, um, of they're losing their faith, right? Now, you know, the founding belief is that Joseph Smith never taught or practiced plural marriage. So, and actually I, it's my contention that that's where when, when it arose, the, um, the Carthage conspiracy, which Justin Griffin draws heavily upon in his, in his film. In the, so in the 1990s, you have, you know, these small group of RLDS traditionalists that are trying to keep their faith alive. They can no longer claim Joseph Smith didn't practice plural marriage. What else is going to threaten their authority? Um, so then the idea that 
Brigham Young was part of um, a plot to have Joseph Smith murdered so he could take over the church. And that's where, that, that's where I believe that that idea arose is in the early 1990s with a man named Joseph F. M. Smith. Like he said, he's kind of the break off of this restorational movement, but trying to keep that tradition alive, that they have the rightful claim to the authority because that now threatened it is you know, the, the evidence, the historical evidence that Joseph Smith did in fact practice plural marriage. In the documentary, he references John Hyshek, uh, uh, is in 1994, came out with a paper that was talking about this. So, um, and, and he's not RLDS, but uh, but he's an independent researcher uh, who came across, made, made these findings as well. Um, maybe speak a little to, to that a little bit as well, if you wish. Well, it's my understanding that John is actually, he believed in uh, that Jane, James Strange was the rightful successor. And so um, I think that's an important to understand that there may be a little bit of a bias there um, where he also doesn't support the ordained leadership of Bergen Young. So um, I'm not always, I'm not as familiar with John's work. Um, well, John, John is a friend of mine. Um, and uh, so we've had some conversations and uh, I will actually be down the road, we'll be um, do, filming something with him as well. Um, Primarily about his collection, he 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 has quite a collection of Mormon memorabilia. So I'm looking forward to doing that. But so basically, the, your thesis is is that in the in the 90s, uh, we have these people who are saying, okay, Joseph Smith did not practice polygamy, and then that led to the Carthage conspiracy idea, and then so now Justin, he's uh, doing his own research and he comes across this information, and then is starting to uh, then. The idea then of maybe him making a documentary at some point entered into the picture. Maybe just talk about your history about Justin, what you know about him, and then your history uh, with with all that. Well, um, so he Justin's given at least two interviews where he he says that was the inspiration, right? He wanted he saw the he came across the Carthage conspiracy on YouTube. It's a poorly made video. It's from the early 1990s, and he just wanted to get the information out there and um, essentially. I've gone through the Carthage conspiracy with the help of, of another person and his claims, and it fits like a glove, Justin's theory. So my contention also is that this isn't Justin's new theory, that this is just his reenactment of the Carthage conspiracy from the 1990s. One thing uh, I want to talk about is he does uh, present a fair amount of quite a bit, actually. Uh, much of the film is kind of a forensic analysis of what happened. Um, he actually takes a few other models and compares and contrasts them and advocates the model he's uh, advocating uh, fits all the, uh, the different, it checks all the boxes, basically. Um, talk a little bit about maybe the forensics of one, what's in the film and two, what you feel is not in the film. Okay, great, sure. Um, before I start doing that, can I just, I, I just wanted to make a point. Sure. First, um, so because, Mike, so at the beginning you said that I, I had an emotional reaction to the film, right? And I just wanna clarify because that's at Justin's, actually that's his claim, but if you don't believe his theory, it's just because you are, you have cognitive dissonance or you're, you're reacting to truth, the 
it's uncomfortable. So I just want to know that this isn't a, an emotional reaction. This is um, like, I, I see the movie as having major historical inaccuracies and omission of key witness testimony and crucial evidence. So this is logical and um, just a logical response, not an emotional one, if that makes sense. Sure, absolutely. Okay, <laughs> I, I just needed to clarify that just because there is that, that accusation out there that anyone who uh, criticizes their movie, it's, it's just based off emotion and denial, not because, right? Not because there's anything wrong with their theory. And so my claim is that there is a lot wrong with their theory. Um, so, you know, first of all, his movie does claim that there's newly uncovered forensic evidence and the information in the movie um, actually just, in my, it, how I see it turned out to be just his opinion and hearsay. Um, so, so number one, so I have about, there's, did you want me to go over all my points now? Or? Sure, absolutely. Let's do it. Okay. So what I found interesting is just the opening of the film. Justin, he's, he drives up to Carthage. He gets out of his truck and he says the first thing he wanted to see was at Carthage was the window, right? That Joseph was shot at and fell to his death. And then he continues and he walks up and he goes and he says he goes immediately to look at the window for any signs of mus musket shots. And I felt like that right there, he's leading in, in the movie, he's leading the audience to assume that he's coming upon a crime scene, right? But what does he fail to mention about the jail? That the, that the jail, is not the same jail. Well, it's the same building, obviously the same structure from, from 1844, right? There's major renovations have happened. So it's, so what does he claim? He sees no signs of any gunshots or musket balls, right? Um, so just want to go over some key facts. In, in 1857, a group of Hancock residents, county residents, they actually visited the jail and they did find bullet holes in a window pane and on the walls. Um, since then, the window has been refilled, the casings renewed, and the walls mostly plastered. Um, there's very little left of, of any, any bullet holes or anything, practically nothing. Um, then in 1866, the gel was sold to a man named Bryant Peterson for $1,100. Um, and even then, it was said in, in the reports, there's a report in the ship, I think it's the Carthage Republican newspaper. It said it would take considerable expenditure to make it a respectable and comfortable residence again, meaning it was just really worn down. And so um, Mr. Peterson, he used various means to, to renovate and he used it as a private re residence for a long time. So he did some work to it and then he sold it to a guy named Mr. J.M. Browning for $1,500. And then Mr. Browning also did considerable work on the building. And he, so almost complete renovation. He took out one of the windows in front of the jail. He built a conservatory. Um, he built a three-room frame structure to take the place of the original kitchen, which he then moved to the back. 
to the rear of the house. Um, and then it was finally sold in 1903 to the church for um, $4,000. And even then, um, between 1903 and 1938, it, um, it, it basically was used and abused. And finally in 1938, the church decided to finally renovate it and that took 12 years. So actually there's nothing original in the jail. And I think that's important for people to understand. So is he gonna walk up, walk up to the jail and he's, is he gonna see any of these, any of these, any evidence? No, it's been completely renovated, completely gutted. The only thing that's original is the door with the two bullet holes and it was a miracle that that was even preserved and given back. And so that, that's my first critique of the movie. So, right, like that, I think that's an important part to understand. Like, Well, just to clarify, um, you said that the walls were plastered over inside. Um, uh -huh. do, do we have a, an idea of, um, about any damage that was done previous uh, inside there that we're, we're aware of? I and mean, what kind of documentation do we have of the condition of Carthage jail uh, after it, it is, all this happened? Right, so there is an account um, from jo Joseph's lawyer and um, that he he went back and he counted and he, and he stated that there are 35 bullet holes inside the jail room. And that's just inside the jail room alone. So my, my question is, that wasn't in the film. He doesn't offer that information. So why, why would that be admitted? Because that's an enormous amount of gunfire and it's proof that the jail was under siege. And I also thought it was interesting that in your interview with him that Justin said, the one thing that surprised him was how small the room was. So if you can imagine four grown men in a small, I think it was, I think it measured 16 by 16 feet, small space, 35 bullet holes. And not one of them is supposedly hit by any of these guns. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And now let's talk about the damage outside of, uh, because one of the questions I have, and I asked, I asked Justin about it because I thought, could the outside exterior been renovated now he had told me i believe it was sam weston did a study or something i don't i, I guess it's unpublished because i guess uh you, you tried to find this out yourself but he has extensively uh, studied all the renovations that were done to it and there's no record of a restoration on the outside so uh, the implication being that there should be if they were being fired in uh, there should be pock marks and damage around the window and outside of it um maybe speak to that as well well did he say that sam weston said that because I, my understanding is, was when you asked him that question is that he just said Sam West knows about that, but he didn't. Oh, okay. So it was, it, I'd have to go back and listen, but me too. That, yeah. Cause that, that caught my attention that he, he didn't specifically say yes or no. He just said, oh, Sam West knows about that. And so okay. Sam West would, I think would have the same kind of information that I would have. And, and so I'm not saying yes, that it was, but I, I'm also saying you can't make a case that it wasn't unless he actually analyzed it and they don't think he did. Okay. But we do know the window casings had bullet holes around them because we have an eyewitness account and they, they have been replaced. So the idea that you can't say that there's no 
bullet marks around the window that Joseph Smith jumped out of. Okay. All right, so you have your list of points. Let's get back to it. Okay. And so there's also an account. So again, he, they're saying there's no, there was no bullets coming from outside into the jail and claiming because there's nothing around, around the building. But there's also a count from the jailer's wife and she was baking a loaf of bread in the oven during the attack and she placed her hand on the mantle and a bullet shot through the window and struck a comb in her hair and she narrowly missed um, or narrowly avoided being shot in the head. So that's another, that's the second eyewitness account of gunshots coming, being fired from outside into the jail, which he also omitted, chose to omit or not bring forth. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, let's see, I'm just looking at my list here. Um, you know, I just want to clarify something real quick because I was just thinking about it. You know, I mentioned earlier in the conversation that I've been told that about a quarter to a third of members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints don't think Joseph practiced polygamy. I want to make a clarification that some of those people who believe that also staunchly are opposed to the film as well. So I, I don't want to make it sound like everybody who's LDS who believes that Joseph didn't practice polygamy also believes this particular um, theory that's uh, given in the movie. Okay, that's good to know. Yeah, yeah, that's, I think that's an important point to clarify. So now I just want to also point out that um, I actually had an online conversation with Rebecca Griffin, which is Justin Griffin's wife, actually just yesterday about this point, oh. this specific point about the, um, the jailer's wife and her account, mm -hmm. and also about the 35, and I asked them, why was this omitted from the movie? There's this account eyewitness account of counting 35 bullet holes in in the walls inside the jail and um the and her response to me was which i found interesting and i think it's important um she said so you're basing everything you say on other people's reports so um she's basically discrediting eyewitness accounts because if you are going to accuse someone of murder, and essentially they have put John Taylor and Willow Richards on trial for murder and basically have convicted him, you can't convict someone without, with, and disregard eyewitness accounts. And so to me, that was shocking, I guess, that she would say, oh, you're just basing that off eyewitness accounts. Yes, I am. Those are important. You can't just disregard those. And so that that told me a lot about their mindset. Um, so point number three, I guess, I, which I think it's so again, he, at the beginning of this film, or they touted this film is newly uncovered forensic evidence, right? And there was no newly uncovered forensic evidence. And in fact, they omitted, and I will, I'll just say omitted, not, not hid, because like you said, I, I believe his, he has good intentions and he believes in what he's doing. So for whatever reason, omitted the fact that the wound in Hiram's face, um, it was demonstrated through the, the death mask 
that it was that of a 69 caliber bullet. So if you are gonna contend that he was shot in the face with a pistol, and then you don't measure the bullet hole wound, or you leave out the fact that it doesn't match that of a pistol, but it, but it does match that it's a 69 caliber bullet, that's key evidence to me. That's, that's real forensic evidence. And just so I know, what is that forensic study uh, based on? Or just maybe reference that. That's actually in which I was surprised that he would omit that because that's actually in the um, Joseph and David Lyon report on page 20 and 21. Okay. And so he's read the report, right? Because he references it. That's in there. Why did he not mention it? Okay. My question. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's that's the main problem here is that if Hiram was shot by John Taylor's pistol in a close quarter struggle, why does his face not have a 69 caliber wound in it? I mean, yeah. I mean that's that's a fair question and, and uh, you know, something to think about. <laughs> right. Again, these are logical um, questions, right? These, this isn't my emotional reaction like they want to claim. This, these are just, I'm thinking this through logically. This doesn't add up. These are questions you have to ask. If we're, It deserves, I, I believe this film deserves an honest cross-examination of the evidence. Just I, like think, it, I think Justin right? wants that. Justin even says, I want a, a cross-examination. So I think this is the beginning of that process. Right, okay. Um, he also, this is, this is what I think is important is that he makes a big deal about the fact that the nine men that were brought up on charges were acquitted. And however, the defense argued that in the course of their plea, that if the prisoners were guilty of murder, then he himself must be guilty, meaning the defense, because it was the public opinion that the Smiths ought to be killed and public opinion made the law. So consequently, it was not murder to kill them. And it was that sophistry that led to the quiddle, not evidence. And so I think that's important for people to know that it wasn't evidence that led to an acquittal, but just clever use of words, essentially right. sophistry. I just want to reference a book. Uh, Brian Stutzman was a guest I had on last week, and he talks about the in the interview, we talk about the, the trial of Joseph Smith. So check out that interview and also check out his book, The History of Warsaw, Illinois. Um, mm -hmm. It's a good read. I think it's an important, it's actually an important book. Uh, and I'm glad that uh, he took four years of his life to study the history of Warsaw and Thomas Sharp and stuff like that. So uh, let's just continue with the, this uh, cross-examination. Okay. So uh, another key um, evidence that puts a huge hole in Justin's theory, I believe, is the testimony of William Hamilton. He was a 17-year-old member of the Carthage Grades, and he actually came upon the jail kind of as the mob were dispersing. And he writes that um, from about 50 yards away, he saw Joseph Smith come out of the window and fall out. One of the men went to him and partially straightened, come, came to Joseph and partially straightened his body out besides the well perp. Just at this time, and I'm quoting William, he says, just at this time, I got up amongst the men and heard him say, he's dead. When all the mob immediately left, I went to where Smith was lying and found that he was dead without doubt. I then went up to the room where they had been quartered 
where I found Hiram Smith lying upon the floor on his back dead. No person was in the room or came while I was there. He was stretched out on the floor just as he had fallen after being shot. And that's it. That's an important key eyewitness account because they contend that Joseph Smith was, the mob came back, they turned over the body and shot him in the back. And he's saying, no, he went there, he saw him on his back, there was no one there, no one else there. And now he's coming when the mob is already dispersed. So, um, I mean, I think that's another, I mean, another eyewitness account that kind of puts a hole in the theory mm -hmm. of where he, Hiram was shot in the back. So you, you do have to question that bullet hole for sure. Yeah, and just also maybe the forensics of the clothing that he was wearing, what would be the implication if there was a gun that was shot directly into his back? What kind of evidence should we be seeing on the clothing? Well, I think for sure you'd see the gunpowder residue, the, the charring of the bullet, because he, he would have been, it, as they depict it in the film, he shot at a very close range, and there's none of that there. And that's another important thing to mention that is in that Lyons study is that the bullets in Hiram's clothing also did measure that of a 69 caliber musket. Okay, okay. So again, you can't say you have forensic evidence if you don't actually, I mean, measuring bullet hole sizes in clothing and, and you know, body, it would be considered forensic, forensic evidence. And so I just, I just wanna kind of, Address because now uh, I'm thinking of most some of the most visual scenes in the film is when he's at the testing range and he's um, showing how what would happen if the, the, the that's those calibers were hitting these heads and they were exploding and everything was just obliterated. Um, now, uh, you know, as, as a lay person, you know, I'm watching this, I'm thinking, well, there's no way seeing all the damage that was done in the range, you know, and then he accounted for maybe less gunpowder and the rate of speed and all this. It's just, you know, again, I'm just an outsider. I, I don't understand forensics. So I, I, but I, what did you think of some of that gun range stuff, what he was doing? I, I mean, honestly, it, it's not the same gun. And I, the wood between where they put the skull and even, even the hand or the arm, it's very thin compared to the door. I mean, you don't even have, you can't call that forensic if it's not the same type of wood, not the same thickness, not the same kind of gun, not the same kind of bullet. And so it was interesting for sure, very entertaining, but I, I that's not, would, would that hold up in a court of law? If you were a prosecutor and you, would that hold up? And I, I would contend that it would not. Okay. That kind of forensics would not hold up. It would have to be the same kind of gun, same kind of bullet, same thickness of the door, same kind of wood, all of that. Okay, so I, I, I do want to say too, uh, you know, I, uh, you before off camera, we were talking about maybe who I could reach out to to maybe could give me like a, a forensic analysis of what's on the film. Like just, okay, what is your, off the top of your head, you're watching this, somebody with, and, and, and I, I just wanna reach out to maybe Sam Weston, if you're watching, um, I'd like for maybe you to come on and maybe uh, talk about, you know, Justin has a lot of respect for you and your work. 
And uh, I would maybe think that he would be a fair person to come on to kind of discuss some of this as well. So just putting that out there. So the cross-examination continues. Continue. Okay, so well, those are my, my five, I okay. feel like five key points. I mean, there, points. so like, as I said before, myself and another person have gone through the Carthage conspiracy and we actually have a pretty, like a 55 page document of, of kind of rebuttals to each of, of the claims in specific to Carthage conspiracy. That's not something we're gonna publish or anything. Um, and obviously not for the length of this, this interview, but there are other serious Okay. So you're saying you 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 have a 55 page paper? Is is that you haven't published it, or is no, it available? No, not, not not publishing. Um, so it, it's bas basically just kind of going through analyzing the Carthage conspiracy alongside David and Joseph Lyons. Okay. And and do, can Research. people have? So a lot. There's there's a lot more points that we can make. Okay. These are the ones that I felt the, the first five for me, these five were probably the ones that stood out to me the most. Stood out the most. Okay. So this, this would be, is there any, any other anybody, is, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I just wondering, just this 55 page document, is there any can, is a way to get access to it? Or is this just something that's private and you're maybe eventually we'll do something with it? What's um, for now it's private. Okay. And, and I think we're trying to decide the best way to okay. get the information out for everybody. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. You know, this it's is- very long. Yeah, very know. long, yeah. Well, this is an ongoing process. You know, essentially the movie came out last week and uh, now we're kind of having the conversation and so things are gonna be in flux, you know? So uh, we'll just keep it at that. So, um, you know, is, is it, like I said, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a forensic scientist or anything like that. So I, I and, and I made a deliberate point not to go online and get involved in the conversations. Yeah, you know, I, I, even with Justin, I mean, uh, I somebody sent, sent me some screenshots of what Brian Stutzman was saying about it. Um, I read a little bit about that. I read Hannah Syriac's um, uh, uh, critique of the film. Uh, and then I said, okay, I'm not reading anything else because I don't want to get involved in the war of words that's going on online, which it tends to happen. I really want to just add to the conversation by having these kind of dialogues. So I'm not taking a side. I'm just, you know, wanting people to, to hear what they have to say. I, uh, I just had a, had a couple of questions for you. What, what aspects about Justin and the film do you maybe uh, want to give props to or you know, that you might might think might have some validity? Um, well, for sure, I the set was amazing. I thought they did an excellent job on that. You, I, I feel like if they didn't, it appears as if they, they poured a lot of money into it. So obviously this was something that was very important to them. So again, like you said, something they believed in. They took very professionalism, a lot of professionalism shown in in just the whole making of the documentary and i would say that i really felt like it did get people interested in church history and asking hard questions i as a researcher i'm not afraid of asking questions i'm not afraid of questions i'm not afraid of of um tackling the hard issues 
Um, so I, I like the fact that it, it will get people to ask questions. And I'm just hoping that they'll go to the right sources for the answers. Okay. You know, our whole, the foundation of the restoration was built upon asking the question to find out the truth. And so I think that was the strength of the film. It, okay. Yeah. It trying people, to... You know, he, he wanted people's paradigms to shift. And I think for a lot of people, it did a good job at, at doing that. Let's just talk about the implications of the film, what he's advocating. What, what, what does it mean to the restoration to have this story out there? Um, what, does it, what does it do to the narrative or like, how do, what are the implications of what, what you think is what he's doing in this film, I guess? Um, yeah, that's, that's a good question. So for me, this is probably what I feel is, is the most important where I feel like is why I'm so passionate about this. And um, I, Justin will probably agree that I am his biggest critic. I'm the, this, I'm the most notable critic of his film. I'm speaking out about it before it even came out. So um, there's no question there. Um, because for me, I feel like this is a spiritual fight or a spiritual battle over our faith. Essentially it's the restoration is under attack and I would contend even the prophet Joseph Smith. This is an attack on the prophet Joseph Smith. Um, it's virtually impossible to conceal such a diabolical plan for so long. And you have to look at the fruits of the restoration. Um, the fruit bears witness to the tree. And so the church under the ordained leadership of Brigham Young and John Taylor did prosper and it has prospered for generations. And Brigham Young did fulfill multiple prophecies. So if you if you take away Brigham Young, there is no restoration. And you cut yourself off from the basically the priesthood succession from Joseph Smith to today. And and I actually wanted to bring up a quote on actually a comment on Justin Griffin's Facebook page, the Who Killed Joseph Smith. So when I talked about, he basically made the claim that anybody that, that those that question his theory it would just be an emotional response. And he said, so this is the comment he made, a post he made. He said, the movie premiere is going to cause a lot of dissonance for those who expose, for those who it exposes to what really happened to Carthage for the first time. I expect there'll be a huge opportunity for detractors to profit off essays, books, and blog posts that give people struggling with the truth an easy out. And then um, a comment in response to that post, someone said that they are freaking out, meaning members of the church who disagree with his theory are freaking out because if they can even think about the truth of what you've uncovered, it means we have all been lied to for a generation and the line of authority is non-existent. And so for me, that right there was revealing of that's the implication is that it cuts off the line of authority and claims that we've been lied to for generations. And I think that will cause a lot of people to doubt the restoration, to doubt the prophet Joseph Smith, and, and to doubt just the founding of, of, of our church. 
Now, I just want to uh, mention, we talked about this the other day um, that I'd asked you if it's okay if we talked about this and you said it was okay. Um, that, you know, he, he in the film, he talked, well, in my interview, he talks about there's this woman that saw a pre-screen a pre copy. I don't really know if she saw the movie. And I asked you, do you know who that is? And you said, well, actually, that, that was me. Um, maybe just talk a little bit about the history there. Right. So, like I said, I've been a very notable, outspoken critic of his film even before it came out. And so before they a couple months before they were going to release the film, they were showing it privately amongst just their Doctrine of Christ um, members. And somebody within the group um, sent me a link with a password. It was a password protected link and I was able to see the film. And, and so, yeah. I, and I was actually very respectful that I didn't reveal too much about what was in the film before it came out, but but still just trying to be warn people about it what i felt was an attack on on the restoration okay and he kind of seems to imply that you're kind of the i mean this is a very sensitive topic folks so and i i i just want us to be you know civil here and just have these conversations but he, he basically says that it was what you doing that is what led to his excommunication that's 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 kind of what he implied um I would disagree with that as well because, okay. uh, you know, I, I do care that Justin was excommunicated. Um, at the same time, I, I've watching, like I said, watching Justin for a year and watching the, the Doctrine of Christ group, Justin has spiritually left the church spiritually and theologically. He, the, Justin, his wife, um, members of the Doctrine of Christ group were openly speaking out of, against key doctrines of the restoration, including temple ordinances, the wearing of the temple garment, um, you know, things like poor marriage. And I mean, they do their own baptisms now. So he spiritually left the church before he was excommunicated. Okay, that's that's your take on it. So okay, that's, that's my take. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, uh, maybe just talk a little bit more about this journey you're on. So now Justin's on a journey. You know, one of the things that I really hit me a few times is first of all, I, I really I don't question Justin's sincerity at all. I'm afraid I think he's a very sincere person. I also thought it was interesting that when I asked him the question about what would what would be the implications of anti-Mormons, people who are opposed to the restoration, were to use his movie against the restoration. And it genuinely, he said it was a good question. He had to really think about it because that and that told me in my in my mind, there's not a malevolency about what he's trying to do. In other words, he the thought never even crossed his mind that enemies of the church, like anti-Mormons, like people like evangelical you know, anti-Mormon Ed Decker and those types of people um, would use this. And that told me that I don't think he ever even thought the implications of that as well. So it seems like he was just on this path and, and that's where he ended up. I mean, maybe speak to that a little bit too. Um, yeah, it's interesting you brought that up because someone actually did send me a screenshot as well from their group because it's a private group. And um, if you met it just on the Doctrine of Christ Facebook group and 
one of their key members did post this is this film coming out is going to cause a faith crisis for a lot of people and so i think they are aware that this film is going to have a negative impact on people and it's it's unfortunate i don't it, he didn't sound they don't sound too concerned about that they just want people to believe their theory and that's my take is that's kind of what they care about the most is that people just subscribe to their theory that John Taylor and Willard Richards killed Joseph Smith and the motive was over plural marriage polygamy we, he said that part two of um, who killed Joseph Smith will be coming out it will be about polygamy it'll be um, about Doctrine and Covenants 101 that has the article of marriage in it that was actually written by Oliver Cowdery, not a revelation from Joseph Smith. They're gonna contend that that was a revelation from Joseph Smith and that the, the law of the church was monogamy. And um, there's a whole history about Doctrine and Covenants, the original in the Book of Commandments, the original Doctrine and Covenants 101, and the, the reason and the purpose for that article of marriage, which they I, they distort that history as well. Hmm. Hmm. Um, yeah, there's down the rabbit hole. Uh, you know, this is kind of an interesting uh, thing. You know, this is not this area is not like an area of expertise for me. So I'm kind of learning like on camera a lot. You know, watching the movie, talking to Justin, talking to you, and uh, so I'm kind of on this journey too of, of just trying to kind of get to the bottom of a lot. You know, I talked to Dan Vogel uh, on one of my interviews and. He says, Steve, he said, of all the research I've been doing, I still don't know what happened when he talks about the very beginnings of Mormonism. And it's kind of like, we still, there's still, we don't really know what happened in that room because, you know, he, he makes some good points about the angles of the, where they would be. And there's, there's a lot of things that are just not known. And so if, even if you agree or disagree with what Justin's doing, at least he's putting something out there and then hopefully other people can then come to the table and say, okay, let's take this forensic analysis and do things like others have done and maybe enter that into the conversation as well. So I, I hope this just leads to productive uh, civil uh, conversations. And, uh, you know, I don't know what happened in that room. I don't, in one sense, I can tell people, I don't have a dog in this fight because I'm an outsider, uh, you know, but I, I think it's important that we try our best to maybe seek the truth and find out what happened. Wherever the evidence leads, that's where sh that's what we should follow. Um, I just wanted to ask you, uh, Kimberly, um, are there any uh, other things that you would like to bring up in this conversation um, before we wind this thing up? Because I, I think it's important that you get your voice gets heard. Yeah, so, so I do wanna speak to motive, right? Um, that again, that's not, that wasn't addressed in the film, motive is, is important because John Taylor and Willard Richards were fiercely loyal to the prophet Joseph Smith. There is nowhere, no evidence whatsoever that they ever conspired against him. Um, we actually have a parallel conspiracy going on in Nauvoo with William Law and others who actually entered into blood oaths and did conspire to kill Joseph Smith. And they, they're the ones that riled up the mob. So you have that evidence. It, just seems, you know, if John Taylor and Willard Richards are the, the killers, they are the luckiest killers on the history of the planet. That they had all these other people that wanted to murder Joseph Smith. And not only did they get away with it, 
but they're never caught and other people take credit for it. But that's not kind of what I, what I wanna to speak to most is the motive. And again, the motive is, is that they deny that Joseph Smith practiced poor marriage. So they will contend that um, essentially Brigham Young took over the church for power and polygamy and that um, Joseph Smith and Hiram Smith were excommunicating people and not for practicing polygamy. And so I do want to speak for that for a minute because um, even Brigham Young and Navi was excommunicating those elders that were practicing polygamy. And polygamy to me is a derogatory term. It's a counterfeit to the true revelation, which is celestial plural marriage, which Joseph Smith did reveal and practice. Um, the difference between polygamy and celestial plural marriage is that celestial plural marriage is done with authority and Joseph Smith received the sealing keys from Elijah, and he was restoring the family as it existed in the pre-mortal or the pre-mortal realm. And he was also restoring the house of Israel. So just like in, in the Old Testament, David was given wives by the prophet Nathan who had the authority. It was only counted for him. Um, for unrighteousness when he took a wife that without the authority. So in Nauvoo, there were elders going around teaching the counterfeit doctrine that they could take any wife they wanted. And Hiram Smith and Joseph Smith spoke explicitly against that, that it was not the right of any elder to take any wife they wanted. That it had to come through authority, had to be practiced in righteousness. It had to be revealed by the prophet Joseph Smith. And what is left out in the conversation mostly is the testimony of the women. And I really appreciate that Hannah Sirak brought that up in her rebuttal as well, is that, and now I'm not a feminist by any stretch of the imagination. I'm a traditional conservative Christian woman, but the voices of the women, women need to be heard. And so what's happened is in this conversation, we talk about the women, but we don't let the women speak. And the women are the second half of the res restoration. They, they deserve to be heard. Um, plural marriage is not a stain on our church's history. Plural marriage is part of our sacred heritage. I believe it to be a true and holy principle that was revealed by the prophet Joseph Smith and practiced in the by the early Latter-day Saints as part of the restoration of the fullness of time. Claiming that Joseph Smith didn't practice plural marriage requires you to, to discount hundreds of eyewitness testimonies that state the opposite. We are talking about hundreds of testimonies, affidavits, journals, letters, and etc., that all corroborate each other. Dates, chronologies, events, details, conversations, etc., when analyzed all together, they prove that the eyewitnesses are telling the truth. And for me, as I said at the beginning of this interview, that I gained my testimony of the doctrine of poor marriage by reading the testimonies of the women. And so that for me is one of the most compelling historical evidences that debunk the claim that Joseph Smith never practiced poor marriage is the testimony of the dozens of women themselves. I have found that most of those claiming this have actually never taken the time to read the many eyewitness testimonies. These women gave detailed, consistent accounts that they excuse me, that never wavered. Their testimonies always pointed back to Jesus Christ and called for greater holiness, 
repentance, chastity, honor, reverence for God. And that doesn't sound like a group of um, adulterous women to me. And a lot of those that want to deny they practice marriage, they do call these women liars, whores, adulterers. Um, so take, for example, Eliza Arsenault, Mary Elizabeth Rollins Leitner, and Helen Mark Kimball. Anyone who reads their writings will see that these women were some of the greatest women to walk on the earth. Their fruit is beautiful. I have seen and experienced the fruit of many of the individuals who spit on these women. They spread lies. They blackmail innocent men and women. They spend their life tearing others down instead of building up. And that's not very appealing to me. Um, if you are unfamiliar with the subject, go and read the firsthand accounts of the women. There are dozens and dozens of men who recorded firsthand accounts and they're important too and fascinating, but you, we have to get back to reading the women. Give them a chance to speak for themselves and you will come closer to Jesus Christ in the process. And um, Hannah did just finish um, volume one of the Poor Wives book and it's on Helen Mark Kimball who is the most controversial wife of the prophet Joseph Smith. And it is an excellent book. Um, I believe it's an untold story of Helen Mark Kimball that you won't find anywhere else. Okay, well, very interesting. I, I just, I just, just there's a question that comes to mind because I talk to everybody, and that would be, what would you say about the elect woman, Emma? Joseph says she's the elect woman, denied polygamy or plural marriage. What, what, how do you respond to that? Well, Emma, there is history has not been able to hide the fact. That Emma did become hardened in her heart against the doctrine. And history has also not been able to hide the fact that she did enter into the practice of poor marriage and actually gave Joseph Smith four of his wives. He's documented proof. Okay, so that would be your, your response to that. Okay, mm -hmm. um, again, you know, talking to everybody, I'm, I, 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 talk, I have a lot of friends in, in independence and surrounding areas who, um, you know, use Emma as their, her voice, if you will to counter the other voices as well. So I think it's important that we just, you know, have this conversation. Um, boy, uh, this has been a very interesting uh, dialogue and I wasn't expecting to be jumping into this. You know, the video that I shot with Justin is getting a lot of views. I'm still a very small channel, uh, but people are watching it. Uh, people are reaching out to me. I'm talking to folks you'd be shocked who off camera are talking to me and uh, the connections I have. And I'm not trying to brag or anything like that. It's just a lot of people have told me they feel what I'm doing is guided by the, by the hand of the Lord. And uh, I've, uh, oh, thank you. <laughs> and and, <laughs> and uh, so I'm, I'm actually humbled by that because uh, the intention of this program was to be secular and scholarly. But early on, it was a saint in independence who blessed me. And it's been the saints with the Church of Jesus Christ, the uh, uh, the, 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 I call them the Pentecostal Mormons. I'm friends with their apostles. Um, they've been blessing me. So I've been blessed by the restoration. And of course, uh, my, my friends out in, in Salt Lake, uh, I've been to Utah twice and, you know, I, I just, I, I'm, I'm honored. I'm really honored by the, uh, the love. Uh, I will call it the Christian love that's been shown to me across the restoration. And I think that's important too. Um, so, I just want to ask you, do you have any final words for my audience that you would like to share? Mm. Well, if I'm speaking to both the Latter-day Saints and the 
evangelical Christian. Um, you know, I I do have a testimony of uh, I, of, of Joseph Smith. Um, I think a lot of the controversy surrounding Joseph Smith is that he takes the Bible literally. So I think the, the, those that that love the Bible, if they study Joseph Smith and compare him to the standard of the Bible, they will find that he is a true prophet of God and he was restoring all of the doctrines that we have found from since Adam all the way down to present day. And I think that we'd find that they would find that we have a lot more in common than not. And um, and I, I'm a defender of the restoration. I think the restoration is what Joseph Smith said it was. It is the kingdom of God on earth. It answers all of society's problems. It brings us closer to God. Um, Joseph Smith revealed truths that um, have been lost for thousands of years. And we have greater knowledge of God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's my witness. Well, Kim, I want to thank you so much for coming on and taking your time to do this. Um, and I just want to thank my audience for all the support you've been giving me as well. Um, I just want to remind my audience to uh, don't forget to uh, like and subscribe and hit the notification bell for when a new uh, video comes out. Uh, you can email me at mormonbookreviews at gmail.com if you wish to contact me. We now are a, a, uh, on a podcast. We're on multiple platforms in a podcast format, so you can catch us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and we'll be adding some more in the next few weeks. Uh, so uh, right now, we're having a little hitch with the podcast, so we're not getting those up right away, but we will start doing that in the next couple of weeks. So right now, just, this will just be on YouTube. Hopefully, in the next few days, we'll also have this episode on the podcast as well. So, so thank you, everybody, for coming on and listening to this program today. And you have yourself a blessed day.